Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome to the Mad Scientist Financial Independence Podcast, the podcast where I get inside the brains of some of the best and brightest in the personal finance space to find out how they achieved financial independence. I'm really excited about today's episode because it's unlike any that I've done before. Um, This one was recorded live back in May at Camp Mustache in the Pacific Northwest. Um, If you're not familiar with Camp Mustache, it's uh, like a weekend conference uh, put on by Mr. Money Mustache Readers, and uh, it's about 50 people. They all come to a really cool lodge in the middle of the woods in Washington State and uh, spend the weekend hanging out, talking finances, drinking beer, and roasting marshmallows on the campfire, and it's, uh, it's a really good time. Um, but on the last day of Camp Mustache, it's usually a time when uh, Pete, a.k.a. Mr. Money Mustache, uh, takes questions from the audience, and you know we sit around and he answers everybody's questions. Uh, so I asked if I could hijack that session this year and sort of do a panel discussion where the audience members ask a bunch of questions and we record it as a podcast and record all the answers. Um, it was a lot of fun to do and there's some incredible stuff that comes out of it. So uh, here it is. It's a panel discussion from Camp Mustache with Mr. Money Mustache, Paula Pant from Afford Anything, Doug Nordman from The Military Guide, and me, The Mad Scientist. All right, welcome, Camp Mustache. Nice, welcome everybody. I'm really excited uh, to get two old podcast guests back on the show. Uh, my first ever interview is sitting to my right, uh, the main man himself, Mr. Money Mustache. Thank you, Mr. Scientist. Welcome back. It's uh, it's been over four years since we last uh, formally chatted. Yeah, that's true. I think I'll be uh, more polished this time. You were great last time. And then, and then we're moving on to my fourth podcast guest ever, which is still way back then, I think probably in 2012. Uh, Paula Pant from AffordAnything.com. Oh, thank you. Um, it, I can't believe it's been four years. <laughs> and finally on the panel, we have Doug Nordman, a.k.a. Nords from the Military Guides. And he's not yet been on the show yet, but I just locked him down this morning for a uh, future interview. So uh, welcome, Doug. I'm just happy to be here. So yeah, we are sitting here in a beautiful lodge in the Pacific Northwest. Uh, There's literally not a cloud in the sky. Uh, We've just had a really fun, intense weekend. Um, You can probably tell that I'm almost losing my voice, so hopefully it holds out. Uh, But lots of great chat, and uh, this is usually what rounds off the camp, is usually everyone asks Pete a lot of questions, but I asked if I could uh, record everything and... And then we we squeezed up here too. So yeah, we're just going to kick off with uh, some questions from the audience, and they may be directed at one of us, all of us, but uh, and it's all going to be interesting. So for the first question, hi, I'm Kevin from Redmond, Washington. <laughs> and my question for the panel is: What is your top recommendation for people who are close to FI? All right. So. So this is uh so I'll hand over to the stash since he's the guest of honor here. <laughs> um, I think mine would be it depends on what your issues are, but most people seem to have an issue of being afraid to quit, and they're like they often get one year one more year syndrome, or am I really going to be okay? And you know after I give up this fire hose of cash for my real job, so for people like that, it is to just set an arbitrary date which might be this afternoon and just do it and then 
because it's, the sooner you get into the new exciting experiences of like this new life, the you know that's when the growth resumes, and that's the whole point of retiring early and starting new adventures is getting the growth. So delaying the growth is often uh, a problem, and people like make that happen for five years or more past when they could have been out there doing new stuff. I'd say my top recommendation is to think about what you're moving into because there's there's moving out of something, whether that's a job or, or whatever is the current thing in your life that you want to escape or leave. But then there's also moving into something that, that really excites you. So focus on um, not on the escape, but on the the new opportunity. Start making that list of what you're going to do all day because it's going to be a long list and you're not going to get half of it done. <laughs> yeah, that, that was it's very similar to what I was thinking. It's think of those big projects that you want to do um, and get a start so that when you lead into early retirement, you have some momentum. I, I still haven't gone there yet, so this is all my thinking. But when I took three months off at the beginning of last year, I had plans to do all these great things. And, you know, Parkinson's law says, you know, whatever amount of time you have to do something, that's how long it'll take. So I had three months to do stuff and that's how long it took. And I really didn't get stuff done I wanted to. Um, so I think rather than having a big daunting start to something new, once you have all the time in the world, I think it would probably be more beneficial to start that hard thing now and have some momentum going into jobless joblessness. But uh, yeah, we'll just, we'll see if that works out, but that's what I would <laughs> suggest probably. Question number two. This is for anybody who would like to answer. What words would you share with someone new to mustachianism to keep them motivated on their financial independence journey? Humans suck at estimating exponential growth. And so you're going to start this journey, and a year later, you're going to be 1% of the way along the journey. A year after that, you'll be 2% of the way along the journey, and it seems like it's going to take forever to finish the journey. However, 10 to 15 years into it, one day you're going to look at your finances and realize that you've made tremendous progress over the last year. It's almost as if you have an extra person in a household with a separate salary, and they're almost earning as much as you. A couple of years later, that investment growth is going to be getting more than you're earning at your current job, and that's when you realize that you're just about financially independent. So stick with those first numbers of years, whether that's 5, 10, or 20 years, because the exponential power of compounding is growing all that way. You just won't appreciate it until the final few years. The main thing that, that I would emphasize is that like, a core part of my philosophy has always been, you know, you can afford anything, but not everything. And every dollar that you spend is a trade-off against something else. And I think that a lot of people, you know, if you're looking at a one purchase in isolation, it's very easy to justify that particular purchase. But if you think of it as a trade-off, either against another purchase or against your time, um, then that that contextualizes it a little bit more. And then it doesn't feel like deprivation. It just feels like, oh, I'm just choosing X instead of Y, you know, even if regardless of what that X is, whether it's travel or just having more time to like spend with your family and friends, whatever that is, that's more important to you than this like shiny thing. Um, I think if you're not sure what you're going to start with, it might be good to start with kind of a philosophy of life and read about, if you want, read some stuff or listen to some audiobooks or whatever about 
you know, just kind of ancient principles that were around before we became this fancy society that we are right now. So things like stoicism and quest for having a reason to be alive. And, and basically what it boils down to is enjoying hardship and, and practicing a voluntary hardship in every day. Um, for example, like just having a bit less clothes than you might normally wear outside or just all these other things. So finding ways to trick yourself into being challenged each day, that's kind of a, a way to immediately make your life become more meaningful. And even if you're still like very at the beginning of getting your finances in order, having this as a framework suddenly makes everything else work better. And then it, suddenly you can earn more money and you can spend less money because you're you're engaged in this quest to make your life better, which happens to involve doing difficult stuff. And most people, we're trained in this country to avoid difficult stuff. And so that's the first thing I think you got to get rid of if you want to get anywhere that's different from the other people. I just made that up. That's awesome. <laughs> so you said something about the meaning of life, and that's uh, an interesting challenge that's been coming into my life recently. And, you know, it's like a job easily distracts you for X number of years and and then maybe children distract you for another years. And you really don't have to answer that fundamental question, like what's the point of me or what's the point of all of this? Um, but as someone who doesn't have kids and may not have kids um, and who doesn't have a job as of August 1st, um, any recommendation from anyone on, on the panel that what do you do to work towards you know, a meaningful life? Anyone want to take that one? I recommend buying a longboard and surfing, and after a while, you'll find your meaning. Uh, I like Nord's answer, even though I don't surf. It's kind of like, uh, yeah, it's just a, a fulfilling passion of something that's like difficult and cool, and you can get better at it over time. And so for me, that's like carpentry is my longboard and waves. And that can, you know, that just sticks with me through my whole life. And that's like everything else is a framework around that, this core passion. So you got to do something with your days. For our next question. Uh, my name is David Fox. I'm from Colorado. Uh, so I had a question maybe if you guys could kind of rewind in your minds to when you were first starting your FI journey. So whether you were like seven years old, like Peter, I don't know, maybe you guys were like in your early 20s or decided that you just hated your job or wanted to do something else. And maybe three or so years into your FI savings, if you had any any doubts or any troubles along the way, or maybe you're working a job that you don't like that can pay you to a point where you have FI, or um, maybe you're just not finding other people who identify with the way you're thinking, um, maybe you could share like an antidote or some advice that kind of kept you on that path or a step that you took to kind of keep you going. Um, I'd be curious to hear that. Well, I know for me personally, I don't think it was motivation to keep pursuing FI. It was more I went the opposite way and went so hardcore that I made myself really unhappy during the process because I just didn't want to do anything uh, that involved spending money because uh, I just wanted to get there as soon as possible. Uh, so that's the big recommendation I would say uh, not to do. Um, so I'm going to pass to someone else as far as what your specific question was, but I figured I'd chime in before and just, um, make that point, um, focus on the power you're getting along the way with all that money that you're saving up and use that power to make your life a lot better along the way. And don't, don't sacrifice happiness for that final number in the bank because, you know, one extra dollar in your bank account's not going to really make you any happier. So work on happiness while you're pursuing it. But I'm going to, anyone want to take that question from David? I have something in my mind for that. So for me, that point was maybe when I'm like 
27 or 28 years old and I'd been working in engineering for, I don't know, like close to 10 years, not eight to 10 years, depending where you count the start date. And so I was getting a little tired, especially with this big company I worked at. Um, so I, I found I had to sort of practice gratitude a little bit, like remind myself how great this job was compared to like working in a gas station like I did when I was 15 and remind myself that I was still in like Boulder, Colorado and doing all this great stuff. And <clears throat> at the end of this, each workday, I worked on the fourth floor of this four story building. And I remember I was kind of like jumping down the stairs at the end of each workday on my way, zigzagging down to where I parked my bike. And I remember thinking, okay, that's another $400 or whatever, which is another, and I would calculate how much, uh, how many more weeks of retirement or weeks closer I had pulled in my retirement because by that time, $400 earned that day, I wasn't going to be spent until 20 years in the future. So it would have compounded to like thousands of dollars. So anyway, I was like, yeah, I just subtracted another 39 days from my work life. And so like little mental games like that just made it feel like I had accomplished a lot in one boring day. And then I was also reminded that the job was not that bad. And yeah, it passed pretty quickly. And uh, so I was happy. And then when I quit, I was, uh, it was just like a really, really guilt-free, wonderful experience because I was like, I did not miss that job at all. Um, the you know the next day I woke up and that was the last I'd ever thought about going into the office. Excellent, Nords. How was it when you were coming about with this? Because I'm not sure there was as many pieces of external information that you could you know fall back on to help you during your journey. So it'd be interesting one one to tell your shortly tell your story and then two to see how you dealt with that question. We were doing this with clay tablets and, and styluses. <laughs> and then the number zero was invented. <laughs> the, the early days, all I knew to do was to save. I knew you had to save a certain amount of money, and I had no idea what I was saving it for. I just knew that I needed to save a certain amount of money. And maybe for your initial journey towards financial independence, you're going to start getting out of debt. Maybe you're just going to save because you know you're going to have some new expense coming up and you're saving for that. But one day you'll figure out what you want to spend your money on or you'll track your spending and figure out what you're wasting your money on and then you'll just start chipping away at that waste until you've boosted up your savings rate. But the thing that keeps you going is the motivation to make your life better. And you've got to be careful with the line between frugality and deprivation. And I tell my military readers, that's easy. You spent most of your time in a military in deprivation. You know exactly where that line is. And on the civilian side, you're looking at frugality. But if you're not having fun, if you're not feeling challenged and fulfilled and enjoying what you're doing and making that struggle toward financial independence, then you're probably into deprivation. That's the time when you take a step back, try not to save so much or try to raise your income and try to enjoy life a little bit more so that you feel revitalized, you feel re-energized, you feel like you can make that journey to the rest of the way to financial independence. My regret in my military career is that when I got to the 12-year point out of 20, my career path had stalled. I didn't know it, but I just had my final promotion. We also started a family. We had a whole new list of priorities that had little or nothing to do with career. And so at that point, I should have left active duty and gone into the reserves. The reserves or National Guard is one week in a month and two weeks a year of military. Just enough camaraderie, not enough money, much better quality of life. If I had done that, then things would have worked out about the same. We would have saved about the same amount of money. We would have reached financial independence a couple of years later with a much better quality of life in between. And we would have gotten the same amount of money at age 60 that I'm probably going to be getting 
around age 60 with my savings, and we would have had a little less in our savings by the time we reached age 60 and that pension kicked in. Instead, I grimly clenched my jaw and gutted it out for eight more years. By the time I got to the 18, 19, 20-year point, it wasn't so bad, but from 12 to 17 years, you could definitely see in my medical record the stress, the mental and physical effects of trying to make it all the way there while you were still in a state of deprivation. So if you find yourself in that state of deprivation, don't just gut it out and say, God, only 10 more years, I'm going to stay the course and keep on it. Instead, back off a little bit, take life a little better, maybe spend a little more money on yourself and delay your plans a year or two. You'll, you'll thank yourself later. And yeah, I'm just going to chime in on that deprivation thing. Um, if you are at that stage like I was, the good news is, is that when you realize that and try to come out of it, by then you've optimized things so much because you um, you likely optimize all your spending before you started depriving yourself of things you liked. So when you come out of that and you start spending more freely, like like I did last year when I didn't have expect to have a salary, but um, was still working, and um, I started spending completely freely. It felt like I was making it rain all the time or something, <laughs> um, and it really didn't move the needle at all um, because all the other things all the other ingrained habits of being frugal were still there. And I, by then I'd optimized so many things. So then when I stopped depriving myself, it really wasn't that much, but it felt like it was the best thing ever. And I was able to do anything. Um, Paula, do you want to jump in with that question? Sure. Yeah. Um, I mean, my story is a little bit different because I, uh, I, my focus was just building passive income. Um, I just, I, before I ever learned about FI, I learned about self-employment and thought, because I didn't know about FI, I thought that that was the goal. And so I became self-employed. And then in order to like give myself some insurance against ever needing to go back into uh, employment, like W-2 employment, I started buying rental properties thinking like that'll just give me a little bit of a safety net. And so it was after I started doing that that, you know, I was like, just kept doing it basically. Um, and I was like, Hey, wait a second. If I just continue to do this, eventually this rental income will be enough that I won't even need to be self-employed if I don't want to be like, so I guess my, my story is different in that I, if I wasn't a goal, uh, just avoiding employment was a goal. (laughs) And then, uh, and then that, you know, came about through, you know, a came about through B, um, but in terms of like frugality and versus deprivation, that's something that, that we also struggled with a lot. Um, like when I started working my first job out of college, I made 21,000 a year. Um, and it felt like a lot because in college, uh, I made about a thousand a month and I had, I had to out of necessity support myself on that. And so like relative to that, uh, 21k a year felt like a lot of money, you know. Um and so I I guess my point is just that like deprivation is very much a a relative state of mind and if you constantly like instead of anchoring yourself to what fancy people are doing, if you anchor yourself to um either the way that you lived when you were younger out of necessity or maybe the way that like you see some friend live or or just the way that like people in other countries or in like 
you know, very, very low income neighborhoods in the United States live. Like if you anchor yourself to those points, you see that what, you know, what might feel like deprivation is actually still pretty awesome, you know. Definitely recommend anyone who's struggling with spending to go spend some time abroad. And yeah, you'll quickly see how luxurious your, your life in America is. Brandon from Denver. I've kind of learned while I'm here that there's a lot of different types of cultures online, even with very similar messages. So what thoughts do you have on sort of guiding culture on your forum with either yourself or with moderators to kind of reach the audience that you want and the culture that you want to have or not? I think we'll go to Pete for this one because he's developed definitely the biggest and most impressive. <laughs> um, I think there's, for me, like my own little personal situation, there's kind of two different cultures in my online world. There's like this main blog that has people throwing in comments at the end of articles. And then there's a much bigger discussion in this forum section where there's like, you know, tens of thousands of people having extended discussions that last like years. And I, I basically don't take part in that other one because it's too big. I don't want to get sucked into it. So we have there's other. Basically, it self manages with the amazing godlike guidance of uh, Joe, who is standing here, and other people. <laughs> and both cultures are are great, but that culture is more of like a community, and people get to know each other, and they exchange things back and forth, and. It's, I think Joe has set up sort of a set of rules that people have to follow and they're just loosely enforced and it gradually, as the body of discussions grows, it serves as a model for other people and, and the rules are like kind of be excellent to each other and party on, dude. And, and that's different from the main blog, which is more like just quick, casual stuff. There's not really an opportunity to talk back and forth. So I have different type of rules for that. And for me, it's um, only say things that are with the goal of sharing information helping or entertaining other people you know there's no sense just reading a comment that's a complaint and also respect what other people have said in the sense that you should read through other things instead of just asking the same question because you're too lazy to read what everybody else has written before you so for me i get to be more of like just a dictator and i use the comments section as a you know a chance to publish people's helpful comments um, which is very different because, you know, in that case, like censorship is sort of appropriate to avoid them getting um, just like a big zoo, like the comments you would get on a CNN article. Um, so those are the two differences. But in both cases, we're shooting for positivity as being the, the guide that everybody should follow. And as soon as people see other people being positive, it seems to be self-reinforcing. And I'll notice like in other websites that without dictators censoring them, it'll sometimes start out positive and then a few people will say something negative and it'll just be like a race to the bottom of, of like complaint fest. Like, oh yeah, I guess we're complaining now. Well, I've got some complaints. <laughs> and it's neat because that works in real life too. If you are kind of the, I don't accept complaints person or at least I gently guide conversations away from complaints, then uh, your real life interactions can be a lot more fun too. So that's maybe a more practical thing because not everybody has to manage forums on their website but everybody does have to manage conversations in real life it's really fun to be you know that i never complain and i never nurture other people's complaints in conversations i try to just gently bring it back to positive so if you haven't tried that you should try it it's pretty neat any other answers 
Yeah, um, I'm lucky in the sense that people tend to find me through Mr. Money Mustache and then maybe Jim Collins, JL Collins NH, and then they get to me. So it's like I my success with the community that I have on my side has been that I've associated with people that I respect, like all of these people on the panel and like other people like Jim Collins and, you know, other blogs out there that I really enjoy. And then that way the people that do find me usually filter through one of those potentially. And then I get like great people, like pre-screened great people coming my way. Um, cause they're, no they're charge. for no charge. I know. Yeah. <laughs> 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 um, so yeah, it's, 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 I'm very lucky in that sense. And that was not thought out or anything like that. It was, it was unintentional, but it's been great. And I, uh, feel really thankful for that. Um, because it's, it's usually the, all of, you know, everyone I've met at any of these sort of Mr. Money Mustache events have been great. So it's like this style of people because they, they want even more than the blog. And that's the people that eventually would find my blog. So I'm lucky in that sense. So anybody else on the panel? For yourself, you're going to go find several internet forums and join those and start commenting and find out if those are your people. You know, earlyretirement.org, Bogleheads, in addition to Mr. Money Mustache, and maybe there's a few other forums on places like Reddit where you can start asking questions and find out who's there and whether they're fun to be with or whether you're just going to quietly move on and try again somewhere else. On your own site, if you build your own site and you're trying to attract a tribe, you can wait for the commenters to show up, and that takes some time. It can take 12 to 18 months before you build a large community through comments on your blog. You can also go to the easy answer, the faster answer, which is build a Facebook group or join other Facebook groups. You don't own that comment. You're at the mercy of Facebook, and you're going to have to deal with the Facebook constrictions on how you do this. But you can build a community a little faster through Facebook to get more people and more comments once you've done that on Facebook at Zuckerberg's expense and with the people that are always there anyway, you can decide whether you want to start your own forum on your own site and then build that up. So I would just say in terms of online, um, I agree with Pete. Like, don't don't let the weirdo into the cocktail party because <laughs> then all the like awesome people are going to leave. You know, don't, don't let too much negativ- negativity come in because some people um, – feel bigger by like taking other people down um you know like like crabs in a bucket sort of a thing uh where they just they can't that that's their whole mission is to like take people down and and you just can't let people like that into your life and by life i mean to- i'm totally missing something here sorry he's, he's <laughs> pinching me with crab <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, yeah, you just can't let, you can't let the pinchers into your life. (laughs) Great, great question. Hey, this is Juan from Colombia. My question kind of revolves around investing. Um, You know, we're here in the middle of 2016 after a long bull market. And even though I know what the textbook says and what you guys say on your blogs, just keep investing every month a little bit. You know, one cannot help to think or to want to time the market in a way. And, you know, that's kind of an internal struggle that I have sometimes and that I've heard other people here have this weekend. Um, if you can just 
you know, give some advice on that, either general or, or specific. That would be great. Yeah, I got a yeah. super quick one. Um, so there's different levels of timing the market that are more or less destructive. And sometimes you just need a psychological crutch to feel like you're doing something. So like you could be, the destructive way would be like, I'm just going to sell everything and then just hold it in like, you know, gold coins under my mattress until until it's cheaper again. So that's, you know, really, really unlikely to work, super likely to cause problems. So, uh, and at the same time, you'd feel like you're doing something, but then you'd feel bad when you have no money, you know, 20 years from now. So instead, you could indulge. First of all, you could keep training yourself and just keep reading these books and be disciplined and always just throw every paycheck into the market. That's probably the, the most winning strategy. But if you really, really can't do that, you could do like little stuff like, well, stocks are so expensive. I'm just going to pay a little bit of my mortgage off extra. Like I'm going to start doing 500 extra to my mortgage this month or for the next year. And so you're, you're still creating a win-win situation where you're getting positive returns on this money and you're diversifying a little bit. And you can't really predict the statistics either way. You might get lucky or you might get slightly unlucky, but you're still going to come out ahead and way better than almost everybody else. So the thing I like to think about with investing is you don't have to be anything close to amazing to make it work for you you just have to keep a net positive over a, a long period of time so you kind of should just do you know whatever approach but just don't let yourself become uninvested and don't try to really outsmart the world so for me i kind of you know i did pay off my house um because uh i felt like well why keep investing in stocks if i even though I know it'll probably exceed this mortgage rate in terms of how much it gives me back. But I paid off the house and and I've never regretted it. I feel great not having a mortgage payment. And statistically, I would have been better to leave the money in stocks and still have a mortgage now. But there's, it's not a contest for most money. It's just a contest for feeling good about your financial situation and sleeping well. So yeah, I'd say just be easy on yourself while avoiding the most stupid possible decisions. <laughs> Yeah, this is something I struggle with as well. Um, even though I know better and, you know, the math shows that you're better off just having most time in market rather than trying to time the market. Uh, one thing that helped me was to set up automated investing. Like obviously my retirement accounts were always automated. My taxable accounts weren't always automated. So then, you know, I'd end up with a ton of cash and I'd be like, I really need to invest this. But then when you have a ton of it, you're like, well, it seems really high right now. I'll just wait until one dip and then, it just never works out. Um, so I set up automated investing and that really helped. Um, but I have a confession. I stopped automating investing because I did some tax loss harvesting earlier this year and I still haven't started it back up because I can't get around my own stupid brain. So now I have a lot of cash again. Um, so it's something I'm trying to work on too. Um, but I just also want to point out that we could have had this conversation in 2012 and been like, wow, this bull market's crazy, you know? Um, and if you had stopped investing, then you would have been sorry. So you can never tell when the bull market's going to stop. So, uh, those are, but you know, that's coming from some guy that's still struggling with it. So take it for what it's worth. So the, the way, cause I, the way that I've dealt with this is, um, instead of thinking about like, I'm going to invest less when I feel like the market's high, like flip your mindset into when I feel like the market's low, I'm going to invest like even more. So whatever amount you're currently investing monthly, just keep doing that. And then when you see a dip, be like, okay, sweet. What is something like I would have spent some money on just something ridiculous, but instead I'm going to like 
take that and like invest that now at the dip. And so by by like taking that approach, you end up investing more money than you otherwise would have because like you're just taking money that you would have otherwise spent at a restaurant or on clothes or on like, I don't know, a fancy cat groomer or whatever, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and like now that is like the way that you like enjoy timing the market and it's just bonus investments. I've I've spent 35 years proving this and and you can share from my wisdom and my mistakes and the first wisdom is you can't control the market you can't influence it you can't have any effect over it the only things you can do is control your reaction control your responses and try to control how you feel one of the ways to do that is to read all you can about the market I recommend history books the more you read about the history of the stock market the more you'll feel that today's volatility is very mild compared to what it used to be. And you'll get an appreciation for how, no matter how bad the markets have gotten, the American economy has continued to rise, gotten stronger, given everybody more wealth, raised the standard of living. If you invest in the long-term benefits, the long-term potential of some economy like that, then despite all the volatility, you'll still come out ahead 20 years from now. And remember, humans suck at appreciating that exponential growth. You have to stick around for 20 years to appreciate how much things improve. If you find out that no matter how much you read, how much you study, that you still can't live with the way the markets behave, then don't invest in markets. Go find something else like real estate. Go find out a way to start your own business and start your own income-producing way of bringing in money. Maybe it'll be passive income from rental real estate. Maybe it'll be a income from a job. I know a, a hedge fund manager who, at the peak of his prowess as a hedge fund manager, sold out, and he took a big pile of cash, and really enjoyed life. 20 years later, he realized what he really should have done is he should have hired a crew of hedge fund managers and, and paid them well, compensated them well for doing it, while he retained a small interest in that hedge fund. 10, 15, 20% of the profits would go to him. That's about as passive as your income can get. He didn't have to care about the stock market. He just had to care about how well his hedge fund guys were doing their job. And Nord's mentioned the like the history of history of the stock market. And I actually have my computer here and I save some interesting quotes anytime I come across them. Um, and this just shows like how overwhelming the upward trend in the market actually is. Um, starting 65 years ago, you've had a new high over 11,000 times, uh, 1100 times, sorry, geez. Um, <laughs> which is about once every 15 days, the market's been opened. So you're hitting new highs about once every 15 days. Um, and if you pick any month of any year, um, it turns you out you have a 75% chance of the market being higher one year later. So three out of four times this month next year is going to be higher. So the overwhelming trend is up, and this could be the lowest the stock market ever gets, but nobody ever knows. So just uh, keep the faith. <laughs> Let's hear for one. Hi, I'm Isabel from San Francisco. This is more of a lighthearted question, but what is your biggest splurge? Uh, my biggest splurge is my relentless um, insistence on fancy houses, and every single detail has to be, you know, in my view, fancy. So, like, for example, I could not live with a white dishwasher or a white microwave, it has to be silver in color. <laughs> 
And I would never be satisfied in the long run with like a plastic shower pan. It has to be finely installed tiles with like just the right grout and stuff. So yeah, I'm really kind of a sucker for the physical environment that I spend most of my time in. And even though it's like, you know, I keep trying to put it in the human history context and like it's very, you know, I'm, I'm wedging myself into a narrow slice of like only this tiny fraction have ever experienced living in a house like that. But I just keep indulging it anyway. And I just, yeah, and I'm, I'm going to keep doing it. <laughs> uh, mine is definitely like fancy beers and fancy like scotches over in Scotland and things. Like I do fancy food is also one of my splurges, but I don't really consider that a splurge because it's nourishing and I at least feel like it's essential. Whereas alcohol is completely counterproductive for health and it's good for socialness. Uh, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, yeah, it's good for social situations. Uh, I was probably a lot more outgoing this weekend. <laughs> thanks to all the beer, but, um, but yeah, it doesn't, since it doesn't really contribute to. A, a good healthy lifestyle I, it's i consider that my biggest splurge uh for me it's it's travel um and that's it's it's a splurge but it's like also a very intentional like very deliberate priority in my life because i've learned it's it's been a big part of like what shaped me and what's made me who i am um and you know i'll, I'll do it with like like mm, you know, stay in Airbnb places or stay in like hostels or guest houses because it's not about like fancy accommodation. It's just about meeting people and experiencing the place. But um, yeah, but I mean, my carbon footprint is massive, unfortunately, you know, and I, I try to like, I feel, yeah, I mean, I just, I, I admit it and I travel a lot and uh, spend a lot of my my money and my time and my like energy there. Um, and, and, yeah, and I'm just going to keep doing it. Surf wax. Any questions? <laughs> I, I feel like I'm relentlessly optimizing my life when I'm at home. I have a photovoltaic array that I enjoyed building solar panels and a solar water heater, and yet that's a hobby that clearly pays for itself. And I enjoyed doing it. I enjoyed putting it together, and now I enjoy the benefits of having done that. But Paul has already mentioned it. One of my splurges is travel. The other one of my splurges is spending excessively when we're traveling. And an example of that is FinCon. I know I'm going to FinCon once a year. I know it's only going to last for a certain amount of time. No matter how hard I work at it, I probably can't spend an entire year's investment income at FinCon. Not, not for lack of trying, but I go to FinCon and I don't worry about the money I'm spending on the hotel room. I don't worry about the money I'm spending on whatever I see going on around FinCon or whatever travel we do around FinCon. I know that's a limited time of the year. It's okay to splurge. I'm not making that a daily habit, and I'm not making that a daily splurge that's out of control. Great question. Round of applause. <laughs> Hi, I'm Janet from Seattle. Um, I think as, as a lot of us are working toward FI, we're really focused on the financial parts of it and, and maybe sometimes get a little bit too obsess obsessed about that. But it seems like a lot of people's experiences, once you get there, that's not really such a big issue. So I'm wondering for, for the four of you, what has been the biggest challenge about reaching financial independence and how have you dealt with it? Yeah. Yeah, we can do it in order again. Um, for me, uh, it is, it's true. The, the money part, it just completely faded away, like pretty quickly. Um, so, so yeah, we don't think about money or investments or anything. It's more about trying to 
make sure you're getting the most happiness out of each day. And for me, because I can be a bit spaghetti scatterbrained, it's trying to get more strategic about long-term life stuff so that I, you know, that I really feel like I'm living a worthwhile life and not just getting too caught up in little activities that like, you know, just trivial pursuits of reading stuff that I don't really get enjoyment out of. So it's, it's more like day-to-day time management. That's my big thing. I'm really, really happy with my family situation already and parenting situation and health. So certainly nothing to complain about, but there's definitely some days at the end of the day where I'm like, oh, I just wasted this whole day of retirement in beautiful location. So that's a thing I'm working on, you know, trying to get those days down to zero. I've already mentioned the whole meaning of life question that's been popping up every once in a while. But um, I also, I haven't stopped working, so maybe things will change after that. But I've also, the other only other thing since getting to this stage has been like a little bit of like guilt or like, why am I so lucky that, this has happened and how did I become so fortunate to get in this sort of situation uh, when a lot of my colleagues and friends and family aren't and they're just as talented and you know hardworking as I am. So They're not. You're just really awesome. <laughs> <laughs> that, that is going to be the title of this episode from <laughs> the Mr. Money Mustache quote. Um, so yeah, that's, that's, those are the two major things that I've struggled with that I didn't really expect to to happen, but they're, it's, they're definitely manageable, which is great. So, um, for me, I think it's knowing, knowing when to stop, uh, with regard to like any kind of money-making pursuit. Um, because, and again, my story is a little different cause I was self-employed. And so once, once I became FI, then there, I didn't have a job to quit, you know, like, uh, I just had a smattering of clients um, and slowly I had the option of like letting go of some client that I didn't like. Um, So instead of like having one very defined moment where I'm like, boss, I quit, you know, it's more like, okay, I've got like a dozen different clients and maybe I'll let go of this one and let go of this one and let go of this one. But then it's like playing whack-a-mole, right? Like you let go of a couple of clients and then these new ones pop up and you're like, oh, that sounds kind of interesting. Sure, I'll take that. And I've got the space in my schedule now. So sure, I'll take that one. And sure, I'll take that one. And then before you know it, you're like working 60-hour weeks and you're not really enjoying it. And you're like, why the F am I doing this? I don't even need the money anyway. And then you like you know, fire a bunch of clients again and then a bunch more pop up. And so that's been like the the struggle for me is like developing those boundaries and being able to say like, wait a minute, um, I, I guess it's kind of similar in it. It's in a different vein, but it's similar to, to what Pete was talking about, uh, like a time management and setting priorities and like really thinking about how you want to spend your days and what's important. Um, and it's, even harder when there's like money involved and like op- like financial opportunity cost involved because and and this also goes back to the like the the one more year syndrome um you know it's the one more client syndrome or the one more project syndrome and that is like just the eternal thing that I've had to fight uh, the two pieces of advice i have are don't recreate your old environment you're financially independent now. You don't have to go back there. The other one is forget about who you were and discover who you are. And that's particularly applicable to military retirees and veterans. 
Maybe you want to recreate some of that because you miss the camaraderie, you miss the mission, you miss the people you used to work with, you miss that sense of accomplishment that you got from the military some of the time, and you want to find more of that. Well, that's where you go and figure out some other way to do that. I've I've found that way by writing, by writing about military topics and answering questions from military readers. Other ways to do that are volunteering, finding somebody else to take care of, if that's your family, if that's your community, or figuring out something that gives you the, the sense of pleasure the sense of accomplishment, fulfillment by going out there and doing something completely different that gives you the same feelings. Um, as a nuclear engineer, I'm told, I'm a little skeptical of this, but I've been told that I tend to be hyper competitive and a little overachieving. When you reach FI, you can back off. And if you're that kind of personality, an even bigger challenge is becoming less hyper competitive and less overachieving. And it's difficult. I've been FI almost as long as I was struggling toward FI, and I'm still struggling toward that backing off and not working so hard and not grabbing for every dollar bill that floats by. <laughs> when you are FI, when you've gotten past the point where you're FI and you're no longer scrambling for every dollar, one day you'll wake up and you realize that it, it is actually raining money out there, and it is tempting to grab a bushel basket and go out there and get your share again. But when you're pushing yourself toward FI and you realize that the retirement calculators are giving you a, an 80, a 90%, a 95% chance of success. As human beings, we tend to focus on the 20%, 10%, 5% chance of failure. However, that 80% chance of success is about statistically about as reasonable a success rate as you can get. It also means that 8 out of 10 times, you're going to have way more money than you need. So one more theme to watch out for in financial independence is the potential burden of stewardship. You get to financial independence with what you think is enough money, eight out of ten times it's going to turn out to be more than enough. A couple of those times it's going to turn out to be way more than enough. Thanks. Good question. <laughs> I'm Jonathan from Portland. Uh, Pete, you were recently profiled in the New Yorker, which is an experience that um, not very many people have had. And uh, I'm a big fan of the New Yorker, uh, for, have been for a long time. And um, it, it, to me, it seemed like that was a kind of a major development in, in terms of people's awareness of of your blog and you know the the whole movement, I guess. And I'm just curious, um, you know, with an interest in publishing and media, what that experience was like, if there were any surprises in terms of how the piece turned out and, um, some of the ripple, some of the ripple effects that, uh, of, of having been, uh, kind of profiled in, in such a mainstream publication. Okay. Well, I would not, it's definitely not as good as it sounds. It's, there's nothing special about any kind of media profile. It's basically not very fun. It's what I learned for any type of interview. Like I had the first, the first big one that I really lucked into was like right near the beginning of the blog. It was in the Washington Post, and uh, everyone's like, "Oh wow, the Washington Post is huge!" And I didn't even know it. And, but that brought a lot of people to the blog. So that's what I realized is the the benefit to me. So every time you do an interview of this type of thing, um, it is. It's like a negative experience for you because you get a lot of like negative criticism. Very little positive reinforcement comes with it. It's usually pretty dull, repetitive questions you have to answer. So the only reason you should do it is not for personal vanity. It's as if you have a reason for attention to be called to your cause. So in this case, I wanted more people to read blogs. That's why I do any of these or my blog and the related blogs that I support. 
that's the only reason I do these um, interviews. And The New Yorker was surprisingly small effect. It was, uh, you think of it as a giant magazine because your parents read it when you were a kid and, and everybody else read it, but it, did, it only had like a small temporary boost to the blog's traffic, partly because there were no direct links in it on their online thing. That's a really key thing is people have to be able to click and get there. Um, so much bigger. Other interviews were actually much bigger than that one. And then the final comment I would have is um, the New Yorker is kind of a satirical, you know, highbrow, super New Yorky culture thing. So they had to make fun of me, I guess. And I didn't know this was going to happen, but they were like, you know, they got a lot of details wrong. And, and which I felt hurt the tone of like life's, you know, the lifestyle I'm trying to promote. And so I was a little bit self-conscious about that. And, and the whole thing was different, actually. I wanted it to be, and what, we, what I thought we agreed we were going to do, me and this writer, is describe mustachianism and what it means as like a cultural idea and how could this actually become a big thing in the U.S. culture. But instead, it was a lot about this guy named Peter Aidney who does these weird things allegedly in his town and goes down to buy his pot on a Wednesday and stuff like that. <laughs> and, uh, and all this stuff was... Uh, I felt super irrelevant, but then, you know, that's how these, some of these magazines work. So yeah, I wouldn't recommend it. You know, prof personal profiles aren't a personal boon, but I did like the wheelie picture that, that we got to use. So that was the, the biggest plus of that story. Uh, next question, I guess. Thank you. Thank you. My name's Hunter. I'm out of Seattle, Washington. And uh, this kind of segues nice off what you were just talking about, but uh, we tend to focus on a lot on the nuts and bolts and the tactics you guys apply to reach FI. Uh, maybe you could say something to how having reached that or having become really close to that level uh, where you don't need as much and you can kind of live a little less for yourself. Uh, you might you know, be a little less this little physical body with needs and fears and stuff and you can kind of champion these causes and, and maybe even live in like a little greater state of transcendence in some ways, whether you get that in different ways in your life, which you've kind of touched on a little bit, but uh, just curious about the sense of strength and clarity you've gotten from uh, not having those needs and uh, having to be so preoccupied with, you know, just arranging your life around your, your basic needs. Thanks. I'll kick off this one just to change up the order, but um, yeah, I think there's an incredible amount of power that you get from being able to not have to work for a living. Um, and I am still working, so I'm, that's why I'm really focused on how I'm going to use that power after I quit. Um, I know, obviously, Pete's having a, a huge movement and changing lots of people and, you know, helping the environment with all these bike riders now. Um, and that's, and that's great. And that's something, luckily, the blog stopped me is that it really does feel great to help other people and to, be creative and create things and put it out in the world. And hopefully that reaches people. So I know uh, something I'm going to want to do is a lot more of that and use the power of not worrying about the monetary reward to maybe tackle some things that other people aren't tackling because there is no monetary reward. Um, um I would say the ability to work, to work on long-term projects. Um, you know, that I think, to me, the, the greatest thing has been like, I don't, I don't worry about anything on a month to month basis. Like, cause I know that I've, j I've got this passive income that comes in that can cover all of my bills. 
and 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 extra, you know, with a nice buffer. And so like the, you know, the question of like supporting my cost of living just doesn't enter my mind. And so if there's something that I want to work on that I think is a worthwhile project, um, I can work on it. And that's amazing. Um, but again, like the biggest barrier is me uh, because, and it, this goes back to prioritizing, um, you know, when when anything is open and available to you, it's very hard to choose, you know? And so you really have to focus in on like, what are my priorities? What are my values? What do I want to create in this world? What What do I want that contribution to be? And sometimes it can just, it can be messy and you kind of, kind of zigzag around and or try something and um you know that that process isn't smooth it's not like one day you wake up and you're like ah you know um so yeah but but having the space to like a child almost like having that space to to try stuff and finger paint a little bit is um you know it's yeah i've forgotten the original question now i'm just (laughs) gonna pass this to doug but it was good (laughs) I think it was either uh, Socrates or Plato or maybe it was Peter Parker from Spider-Man that said that with great power comes great responsibility. And when I, when I started writing and began writing the book, one of the hooks that I used to get the help I wanted to write the book, one of the hooks I used to make sure everybody understood that I was financially independent was to give all the profits from my writing, all the revenue from my writing to military charities. That way I'm not having some junior enlisted person buy my book on figuring how to achieve financial independence. Oh, by the way, you just paid me $8, and a couple of bucks of that is going to go toward prolonging my financial independence. (laughs) One of the things I did after I reached FI was take some of that extra money that I had for investing. Everybody should have 10 to 15% of their investment portfolio in what's called aggressive, highly aggressive, shoot-the-moon, testosterone-poisoned investing. And in my case... (laughs) Like none of you have never heard that term before. <laughs> in my case, I took that and devoted that towards something I'd always been curious about was angel investing. And my impression of angel investing was you went into a room, you asked a lot of questions, you did your due diligence, you wrote some checks, you went away, you came back 18 months later, and Google was paying you a million dollars. That that reality is not there. The uh, reality that surprised me was that you learned a lot more about investing by becoming an angel investor than you ever learned from reading about Wall Street or the randomness of stock markets or how to uh, analyze a stock. So angel investing, the eight-year journey I've spent on it so far has made me a tremendous investor. I wish I had started out being an angel investor first. That would have saved me a lot of problems in the long run. The second thing that angel investing taught me was that it's a good thing I'm doing it now. It's a good thing I'm immunizing myself about angel investing now so that when I'm 82 years old, I won't be tempted to go out and start writing checks in the hopes that I do discover the next Google. I don't think that's going to end well. I'll be able to wind down angel investing and focus on what I think are the important parts of it now while I'm at the hypothetical peak of my cognition and able to not be tempted by the unknown later on when I'm not at the peak of my cognition. The third thing that really surprised me about angel investing was how fulfilling it would be developing the relationships with the founders and the other investors. And another word for it might be angel philanthropy because you really are giving away large sums of money. And those large sums of money are going out to create jobs. And instead of giving somebody a handout, you're giving a person who is an incredibly committed, enthusiastic, fierce, hardworking founder, giving them what they need to go out and solve tremendously ugly, gnarly, nasty society problems 
and then you know they're going to work on that 100 hours a week and hire a bunch of people and create a bunch more jobs and use the revenue they bring in to grow the business and hire more people, you're actually pouring your money back into the American economy, into the kind of people that you really would like to help without giving them a hand up. So the angel investing has taught me a lot more about stewardship, philanthropy, charity, and investing. You want to take this one too? Or? Uh, I have just a super short point to add. Um, so I was always kind of cautious in uh, my younger years, like because of my upbringing, kind of cautious family. So I was like, save your money, protect yourself, build up walls to make sure you can never possibly run out of money. And that was like, it was fun and, and somewhat rewarding. But then once I got to the uh, ridiculous surplus point, like shortly after that, then I realized, well, the only logical choice is to do to devote your time to helping other people because you don't need to help yourself anymore. And then, and then I realized that that's actually a much more fun way to devote your time. So in a way, being almost purely generous is the most selfish thing you can do because you're having like, it makes you feel much better than just, you know, giving yourself stuff, giving yourself more security and treats and everything. So, uh, so then it makes, it's like a double win because you can be like selfish by being generous for the rest of your life. That's a great pursuit. It's like suddenly a new thing to do with money and, and time. So that's, that was a big surprise for me. I actually, I didn't know that was going to happen. All right. I think we have Eric. Hi, my name is uh, Eric. I'm from Everett, Washington. And uh, my question is more around, uh, this is a, a great community, right? Um, we're a bunch of like-minded individuals. Uh, I'm about seven months into my journey, and uh, I'm the type of person that once I find something that I really enjoy, I go all in, and I go down the rabbit hole really quickly, and then I become very evangelical and annoying about it. So... <laughs> How do I temper that? And how do you know? We go back to our our friend, our circle of friends, and they may not be even aware of this. And how do I, you know, this community and fire? And how do we? How do I temper that? And how do I bring them along in that journey? You probably can't. Like people don't really listen to you that much in real life. I find, but you can just model the behavior. And make sure you're having a good time of it. And then your curious friends, which are the, in the long run, the ones that are worth keeping, they are going to ask you themselves. And, and if they see good results, they're going to naturally want to follow it. And non-curious people, it, they get old after a while. So you might drift into different friendship patterns as you go further on. That's my super quick answer. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I would, I agree. I find that, uh, You'll have friends who are very receptive and very open and who will just start asking you questions. Like I have a friend who is right at the beginning of paying attention to her finances and she's 36. And up to this point, she always thought that like, well, as long as I'm paying my bills on time, that means I'm financially responsible. And like she just discovered that there's like actually more to it than just that. And and she's like wowed by it and amazed and really open to learning and so she like I don't have to bring her along because she brings herself along like you know she's always asking questions she's like just she's and her enthusiasm like really rubs off on me and it makes my afternoon more enjoyable um, because I get to 
re-experience like that that stage kind of vicariously by by being with her you know but i've got other friends who are like money is evil you know and and i there's just there's no talking to them because they've just got this wall where they're like i am better than you because i never think about money because money is evil and and there's there's nothing you can do with that You're in, a, you're in the role of the teacher, and when the student is ready, the teacher is already there. The teacher's already been there for many, many years before the student was ready. So the people that you're wanting to perhaps persuade of the wonderful world of FI, they might not be ready yet. So the best you can do, they say that living well is the best vengeance, and living well is the best example as well. And so one day, they're going to be ready, and they're going to come talk to you. In the meantime... If you want an outlet where you can feel like you're accomplishing something without waiting for people to recognize your brilliance or your, or your wisdom, <laughs> the other thing you can do is start writing. And it's as simple as posting to Internet forums. Somebody asks a question on the forum, and you answer it from the perspective of financial independence. That person who asked the question might not quite be on board with you yet, and the response that they'll give you will be, yeah, but. This isn't working for me. It's not the right time in my life. i got too many other options. Whatever the excuse it may be. However... Thousands of people will be reading that same thread on that internet forum, and some of those people will be ready. You can start a blog, same purpose. Whenever I answer a reader question on the blog, most of the time that I answer a reader question on a blog, I never hear from that reader again. On the other hand, I have another couple thousand people who will read that post, and they'll be ready, and they'll respond. So it's not that you can't reach those people in an immediate circle around you as well as as much as you are demonstrating what you're living, you're the shining example of truth and the way you live your life, and then people will gravitate toward that. You don't have to be needy for the people to follow your example and do what you want them to do. You just have to live the kind of life that you want to live and show the example you want to be, and those people will come toward you. Great question. So we've been going about an hour. I know Pete doesn't like sitting still for longer than about 30 minutes. So he's probably getting antsy and I need, I'm in dire need of some vitamin D so I can see the sun is shining. Uh, so we're going to take our last few questions. So anyone else that still wants to ask something, uh, do you want to just top up? Once you reached FI, how did your relationships with your personal friends, your ex coworkers, or your family change and what effect did that have on you? Financial independence will separate your coworkers from your true friends. And you'll find out you have a lot of coworkers. <laughs> the other thing financial independence will do is give you and your spouse and your family time to grow closer together. Uh, one early 1980s, 1990s perspective on financial independence was what happens if everybody stops working and goes and does whatever they want to do all day? What kind of an example are we setting for the children by behaving in such an irresponsible manner? The answer to that question is the kids don't care about your work. They care about you. They want to have more time with you. As adolescents, they just want to spend time with mom and dad and play around and have a good time. As teenagers, they don't want to be seen in public with you, but they do want your car keys and your wallet. They want you, they want you to be there for them, to support them. And years later, I'm almost positive of this, years later when they're young adults on their own, they'll come back and thank you on a regular basis. And I'll let you know as soon as that happens in my case. <laughs> 
Also, what will happen once you've reached that financial independence and you're out there living your life and waiting to find out where your coworkers and your friends are, you'll find new friends, you'll find new people that you encounter on a journey, and you'll you'll have a good time with them. And it'll be because you have the time to reflect, the time to think about the way you want to live your life, the things you want to do with your time. People will see you enjoying life, having fun. They'll say, wow, that's somebody I want to get to know. And so, again, the more you enjoy yourself as a responsible adult with financial independence, suddenly the more people will gravitate toward you and want to learn more about how you did it, and the right kind of people will be the ones that will gravitate toward you. Um, Yeah, I'd say uh, it goes back to the friend thing. Um, You know, some people might not even realize it. You know, some people are just – a lot of people don't think too hard about work like what other what them, they themselves or others do for work and money so at least in terms of friendships like you know i think some people don't even it know or it doesn't even register and so there's no impact at all um you know and then the people like the the friend that i just described the one who's just discovered um, the world of like money management for the first time, like those are the friendships that get enhanced. So in my experience, at least it's either completely, as far as friendships go, it's either completely neutral because it just doesn't register for them or it's actually an, a friendship enhancer because now you've done this thing that they think is really interesting and they have a lot of questions about it. And my final thing is, is just echoing Nord's, which is I found family and close friends become much closer, especially the family part, because suddenly you never have to say no to stuff that you would want to do because of work. So as soon as I we retired and had a kid, we started spending like the entirety of every summer in Canada back hanging around with siblings and grandparents and stuff. Whereas in the old days, it would have, if we had kept our jobs, it would have just been like two weeks limited and and so suddenly, and if they plant something in the middle of the winter or anything else, you can always just go up there and just have time. So um, it's so nice to take work away as your first priority. And that lets um, people you care about, I think they sense a lot more warmth coming from you because you no longer have to give your soul to the office anymore. That's, I think that's a good way to, to end this. So thank you all for, you know, being here and asking amazing questions. Thanks to my panelists being open and honest and answering all the questions and uh it's been a lot of fun so thanks finance